Last week, Lee covered the first six verses of 1 John chapter 4, where John reminds us that there are spirit beings interacting with us as we go through life on planet Earth. As Lee told us, John actually started that section of Scripture in the last verse of chapter 3. Before he started talking about dark spirits, he talked about the Holy Spirit living inside of us. He also went on to say that there were demonic spirits around us that opposed Jesus and his teachings. John refers to those spirits as lying spirits and antichrist spirits. In his day, they were denying either the humanity or the deity of Christ and his key word for the day, atoning sacrifice. These spirits manifested themselves through people, as most of the time they do. And he called these people simply false teachers. John moves now to the topic of God's love for us and our need to love other people as an expression of God's love. That's one of the primary themes of 1 John. John uses three different terms to describe God in his writings. Uh, And when I say his writings, I'm talking about the gospel of John 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation. He records in John, the Gospel of John, 424, Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well. You remember that story. There he said, Jesus himself said to the woman that God is spirit. And that's the one way, one of the three ways that John describes God in his writings as God is spirit. Then as you heard on that little introductory video we have every week, during this series, God is also described as light. I'll spend just a minute, indulge me. I want to tell one of my little God stories about that. Uh, in First John, or excuse me, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, he says that several times. In First John 1, 5, he says it. One time, Peter, James, and John went up on a mountain to pray. And they saw Jesus' appearance change to extreme bright, flashing lightning all around him. Matthew, Mark... Uh, and Luke described that. If you want to reference a verse, Luke 9, 29 is one of the references for that. When Paul encountered Jesus himself on the road to Damascus as he was going to persecute and imprison Christians, he appeared. Jesus appeared as a bright, flashing light, too, that surrounded him. When John, who had encountered Jesus many times while I hear, was here on earth as a man, encountered the risen Christ in a vision And he recorded it in the book of Revelation. Remember, he said he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when this revelation occurred. He described Jesus in Revelation 1-6 in a similar way. He said his face was like the sun literally shining in all its brilliance. Now, some people since John's day, throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, same God, same Holy Spirit, things like this still happen, maybe not as frequently. You can choose to believe or not believe, but I wanted to share one of those occurrences with you. Many people have had to claim to have had visions of Jesus as well. Some of them said that he spoke to him. And many times he too manifested as a bright light. I want to tell you one little story about that. I talked a few years ago. I interviewed a, an eight-year-old girl and her mother. Her mother told me that her daughter, and you'd have to know this child, came home from school one day. And her mother asked her how her day went. And she just nonchalantly said, well, I saw God today. She said, oh, what did he look like? And uh, her first line was, Mom, he was bright. I mean, he was really, really bright. She said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I shared Jesus with a little girl that I've been praying for on the playground. And I came here from recess. 
I was sitting in my seat and I looked above the teacher on the back wall and this really bright light appeared and I heard a voice speak to me and tell me that he was really pleased with me for talking about him at recess. Now you can choose to believe stories like that or not. And that was a little bit off task this morning, but I had to share it with you, okay? In today's text, John says that God is love. Meaning that God's character and his behavior define love itself. So God is spirit, God is light, God is love, according to John. So in the text, we'll discuss the most important thing today that God did for us as an act of sacrificial love. And John's going to encourage us to express that great love that we have experienced and ought to be experiencing daily to those around us. So now with that backdrop, let's dive into the text. It's 1 John chapter 4. Verses 7 through 12, six verses. John starts out with endearing terms, perfect for talking about love. Dear friends, let us, he includes himself in that mix, let us love one another. For love comes from God. He's going to say this several ways. Everyone who loves has been born of God. What he's saying is everyone who has experienced this divine love ought to be reflecting that divine love back, even though it's in imperfect ways in some way to other people. And then one of his things that is unique to him, well, Peter does it one time. He says, those of us that have been born of God, more on that in a minute, and knows God. He says, knows God twice in these next two verses. Knowing God is a big deal, more on that too in a moment. Whoever does not love, whoever does not manifest some of this divine love we receive, does not really know God. When he's talking about knowing God, he's talking about experiencing God relationally. See, you don't know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. Now, he's going to describe in two verses the primary way he argues that God has manifested his love toward humanity. There's lots of ways, and we'll discuss some of those, that God manifests his love toward humanity. But this is the biggie. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son... That phrase is kind of unique to to John. Uh, He's talking about Jesus as part of the Trinity. More on that too in a moment. His one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He's talking about live now and have eternal life. John chapter, 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. This is the key verse for this morning. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son, he's already said this, but he hadn't said this. This is a deep dive theologically. There's a richness here. There's there's even a kind of a legal thought here about justification. These next terms really have deep, serious meaning. So I'm going to do a deep dive this morning into these terms in just a few minutes. Now John is from a Jewish background. His Jewish audience... It wasn't a complete Jewish audience he had, but they would have understood more fully than us Gentiles would have, even in the first century. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, or your translation may say, a propitiation for our sins. We'll dive into that again in a minute. Dear friends, since God so loved us, and so loved us means he loved us enough to come and pour himself out as the sin sacrifice and die. He sent his son to do that. Since he so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Same thought. No one has ever seen God. 
he throws that out a lot. I'm not sure exactly why, to be honest with you, because he's seen manifestations of God several times. He argues that Jesus is God in several places, but he's talking about apparently the fullness of God. No one has ever seen the fullness of God. Even Isaiah didn't. Even all those Old Testament prophets didn't. No one has ever seen God fully. But if we love one another, he's saying it's evidence that God, this powerful, star-breathing God, lives inside of us, and his love is made complete in us. That's the text. Now, comments on the text. Verse 7. Again, John starts by asking us to apply the truth he's going to share. He tells us simply to love one another. He doesn't tell us exactly how he expects us to do that or how we should express that love to each other. There's lots of possibilities. Uh, Affirming one another, speaking tenderly to one another, by providing food, housing, clothing, transportation, or giving money to one another, or maybe just working with someone and helping them in some tangible way. Those are all possibilities. You know what? They're taught specifically by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, and James specifically in his teachings. But there's another very important way for us to express Jesus' love that Jesus taught was the most important way. And I think what John has in view here and that is simply forgiving one another because that fits the atonement a little better than any of those other things Jesus expressed his forgiveness in a powerful dramatic way by laying down his life for us so I think that's primarily what John has in mind here more again on that in a minute verses 7 and 8 John says that love comes from God and that God is love Now, love is not the only character quality of God, but God's ethos and his value system are the very definition of love. Love originates with God. Make no mistake about it. God expresses his love in a variety of ways, not just the way that John describes here. Think about it. Common graces, they've been called, like breathing life into human beings, giving us air to breathe, food to eat, companionship, allowing us to taste, see, smell, feel. He endows us with some of his creativity, some of his wisdom. He provides us, even if you're not a Christian this morning, he provides all humanity with a basic moral compass because we're created in his image. He answers our prayers. There's all kinds of ways that God blesses us and expresses love to us. But those expressions of God's love, again, are not what John primarily had in view in this passage. Again, verses 7 and 8. Everyone who truly tries to express this divine love, according to John, is born of God. Born again, if you will, of of that spirit John talked about in John 3, 3. Remember that story? I talked about it two weeks ago. Nicodemus, the Jewish leader, shows up to Jesus by night. Hey, I ought to get to heaven. Everybody wants to know that, right? He did too. Jesus throws out this cryptic thought. Oh, you got to be born again. I mean, if you heard that for the first time, you'd be like, Nicodemus, what are you talking about? Jesus never fully explains it. He expounds on it a little bit. He starts talking about the Holy Spirit. John talks about it too in John 1, verse 13. Peter talks about it. We talked about that two weeks ago. 1 Peter 1, 23. John is saying here in verse 8 another thing. He states it negatively. 
Jim, if you don't love other people, then you really don't know God. Knowing God is a big deal with God. Knowing God's love is very important. It's a foundation. You can't really love in a supernatural way if you haven't experienced a supernatural love and you aren't experiencing it daily. So loving other people, I'll put it this way, it's kind of like a supernatural byproduct of a relationship. The love that we're receiving daily and experiencing. The love that brings an inner healing that allows us to treat other people differently. Verse 9, the primary way that God showed his love, again, was sending his one and only son to die for us, to be what's called the atoning sin sacrifice or the propitiation for our sins. Don't worry, I'm going deep there in just a minute. Let me take one more little tangent. The phrase one and only son. It means a unique being. John tells us a lot about the Trinity more than any other writer, I believe, in the New Testament, even though he never uses that term. Let me just give you one example of that. It's the most common example. It's the most popular example, but it's still the most profound. John begins the book of John, uh, the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, in eternity past. And And he's speaking in kind of cryptic terms, and he says this, In the beginning was the Word. Now, he's calling Jesus the Word. He's got several names for Jesus in this passage. One of them is the Word. And the Word was with God. He's trying to give us some understanding of the Trinity, or at least Jesus' deity, I'll put it that way. And the Word was with God. And then he makes a statement that you can't get around. You can't translate around this. He said, the Word was God. That's pretty straightforward. He was with God in the beginning. He was back there with God and the Father and God the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters back there in creation. He was with the Holy Spirit and Daddy back there in eternity past. Through him, like Paul says in Colossians, all things were made. Jesus is the creation agent. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Skip down to, where am I going next? Verse 14. The Word, meaning Jesus, became flesh. That's the incarnation it's called. He became Mary's baby boy. How did that happen? I don't know. But it happened. The Word became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. God came to live to earth in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. And we've seen his glory. Jesus said, I'm reflecting that glory to you. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The glory of the one and only. There's that phrase again about Jesus who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. There he says this again. No one's ever seen God, not in his fullness, but God the one and only. He's talking about Jesus, the Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known or revealed him to us. Now, key thought for this morning. I'm going to dive deep into this primary expression of love by God. And Jesus, described by John as the atonement, the sin sacrifice, or the propitiation for our sins. This has been, for the last 2,000 years of church history, that's all of church history, a foundational, if not the foundational, doctrine and belief among Christ followers. Surprise, surprise, it's under attack today. It's under attack by people who call themselves Christ followers. So I'm going 
on a very fast scriptural journey. So you better put your, as my teachers in grade school used to say, your thinking cap on, okay? I'm warning you. This is going to be scriptural fire hose. And uh, I may get critiqued heavily for this, but I'm doing it, okay? So open wide and swallow fast. Uh, Let's start back there in Genesis 2. Verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to go back and forth between Old and New Testament because I want to overwhelm you with the, the concept of the atonement or the sin sacrifice of Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. So start back there when God's giving those instructions to Adam. You just got one rule, Adam. On the, one rule for you on the planet. Don't eat of this certain tree in the middle of the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Was Eve there when you got to eat it? Maybe, maybe not. But she got the word later. She doesn't have any excuse either. Both of them knew this was the one rule. Don't eat or you die. That's pretty much rule and consequence, okay? That's pretty understandable. And you know what happens next. Uh, He sets a clear boundary for Adam. Uh, and, and by the way, before I start talking about the snake, notice that from the very beginning, death is associated with something the Bible describes later as sin or a violation of God's revealed moral standard. It's clear from the rest of that chapter, chapter 2 in Genesis and chapter 3, that sin or willful disobedience is first and foremost an offense against who? God. It's an offense against God. Now, the enemy of God, Satan, shows up manifesting as a snake and he lies to Adam and Eve and he says, sin will not bring death. That's called a lie. And they say, we're going to believe the lie. Something called the law of sin and death begins to operate at that point and death enters creation and a curse occurs on all of creation because of what? Because of the offense against God by Adam and Eve. Now, this is a sidebar. In order to clothe the two earliest humans after they realized they were naked, God does what? Kills two animals. He sheds their blood. And he provides a covering for them. Now, let's jump to the New Testament for a minute. Romans six twenty three. Paul writing to a church in Rome. He says this, and many of you have used this verse and learned how to share your faith through it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8, 2, Paul says in another way. Because through Jesus Christ, this other universal law, these are are spiritual laws, they're universal spiritual laws, just like the law of gravity. Again, if I were to drop something here, it's not going sideways, it's not going up, it's going down because of the law of gravity. Well, there are spiritual laws that are just as sure as that. One of them is sin brings death. But there's some other spiritual laws that trump or overrule that, that condition that. One of them is this law of the spirit of life that has to do with this blood sacrifice, this atoning sacrifice. And Paul says, it set me free, my faith in that has, from the law of what? Sin and death. I want us to hear from a famous Old Testament sinner now. I'm jumping back to the, um, the Old Testament. And there's this story that you're all familiar with about a significant sinner in the Old Testament. His name was David. Remember him? And, and he blew it a lot like we do. 
But he blew it a little bigger than most of us have ever blown it, I hope, in this room. Probably wouldn't be here if you'd gotten caught. Uh, he has an affair, one night stand with a beautiful woman, and she happens to be married to one of his close friends. And she gets pregnant. And, and you know the story. To cover up that, he ultimately ends up murdering her husband, Uriah. And, and then he takes the woman into his house, and he stays married to her the rest of his life. And, and God confronts him through a prophet named Nathan. And I want you to hear David's words when he comes to his senses. He's speaking to God in Psalm 51.4, and he says this. He says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. If I'm Uriah, I'm going up there in heaven, I sure felt like it was against me. That's my wife you're sleeping with, dude, and you ruined my family. So sin has horizontal consequences, terrible ones. But first and foremost is an affront an offense against the holy and righteous God who gave David a conscience to start with. He knew better. And he says this, so you're right, God, when you speak and justified when you judge. Verse 10 in the text today, the Hebrew and Greek words in the Old and New Testament that are translated atonement or propitiating, propitiation, they all relate to something we want, being reconciled to God after our sin and the sins of our ancient ancestors. The Bible is very, very clear on this point. Sin brings death. And in order to fully satisfy God's own sense of justice, he wrote another universal law. That sin would require the blood of a perfect sacrifice to atone for, cover for, pay a debt that was owed. It's his own sense of justice, like it or not, as I always like to say and remind myself of, this ain't your universe, Jim. <laughs> he gets to write the rules. And he wrote himself into the story as his son. As be, being the blood sacrifice, God wrote himself into the story, his son, when he wrote that rule. The term propitiation is defined as to appease or regain favor with God that was lost. The term atonement, it's a substitutionary payment for a wrong done to someone. In law, we call it restitution. The wrong creates a debt that is owed. Other definitions include a covering for our sin or a reconciliation by blood. Now, I decided to look it up and try to count. <laughs> in a concordance, and I lose my train of thought too quickly. But somewhere between, you know, unless you think this is some obscure theological principle, I want to dispel that myth. So there's somewhere between 350 and 400 times in the Old Testament the word blood appears. In the New Testament, it appears around 100 times, give or take two or three, blood appears. I did count this, 41 of the times in the New Testament, the specific reference is to the blood of Jesus, paying our sin debt or cleansing us from unrighteousness or paying a penalty for our sins or bringing us eternal life. So I'm just going to check out now, I'm going to continue this little journey and check out now a few more of those hundreds of references 
Because this is really, really important stuff, especially today. Back to the Old Testament. I'll start with the Jewish sacrificial system. It was established by God, pointing to the ultimate sacrifice someday of Jesus, the so-called Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The pinnacle event of the Jewish sacrificial system, there's a lot of detail I'm not going to go into, was the annual Day of Atonement, established in Exodus 30, verse 10. It's described later in detail in Leviticus chapter 16. It involved the blood of a bull and a goat, if we can pull up our goat picture, our cute little goat picture, being placed on the portions of the altar in the center of the tabernacle. One goat was killed and his blood was placed on portions of the altar that represented the presence of God in that tabernacle that that they would set up in the wilderness when they camped. And the confession of sin over the head of a scapegoat was made. That's where we get the phrase, scapegoat. And the scapegoats were released outside the Israelite. He was said to carry the sins of the people away. God said this to Moses. Moses recorded in Leviticus 17, 11, as he was giving him the law out there in the wilderness. He said, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given you blood to make an atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Jump forward to the late first century. The writer of Hebrews, very Jewish book, is writing about the law. And this gets a little bit Jewish, so hang with me. But I want you to hear it. When Christ came, this is Hebrews 9 beginning in verse 11. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. He's talking now in heavenly terms. That is not man-made or made with human hands. That is to say not a part of this creation, somewhere in heaven. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, a sanctuary in heaven, once and for all by his own blood, having tamed what? Eternal redemption. Redemption is another illegal word. It means to buy back something that was once lost. That's us, folks. To a snake, to a liar. He's paying it for us with his own blood. And then he goes on to say the blood of bulls and goats, they were really just a symbol. They never really were meant to be the real thing. How much more then, verse 14, well, the blood of Christ, this is a powerful sentence, through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse my conscience and your conscience from acts that lead to what? Death, so that we may serve who? The living God. Skip down now to verse 22. I'm going to go ahead and skip there. In fact, the law, he's talking about the Jewish law, requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or forgiveness of sin. Verse 26, second part of it. I'll finish this in Hebrews anyway. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let's jump now back hundreds of years before even Moses got the law. Back to a time when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. An event you're probably pretty familiar with, I'll just remind you. It's called the Passover. It was before the sacrificial system was established. 
this is actually not hundreds of years before Moses got the law. It's just maybe a year or two before, but it's hundreds of years before the writer of Hebrews wrote. It's Exodus chapter 12, if you want to turn there. The, the Israelites had been enslaved for about 400 years by the Egyptians. And they were being treated brutally, and God wanted them freed. He sent Moses as their deliverer, but ultimately God was their deliverer. Moses did all kinds of things to try to convince Pharaoh, you know the stories, you've seen the movies, to let him go. He wouldn't. Finally, God brings severe judgment on the nation of Egypt. He's going to kill a bunch of people, a bunch of animals, because they won't let the Israelites go. Verse 3, he says this in preparation for that judgment night. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one from each household. Skip down to verse 6. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood, there's that blood thing again, and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they will eat the lambs. Skip down to verse 12. On that same night, I, not I as the loving Lamb of God, but I as the justice and righteousness bringing judgment on evil God will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. He's talking about those demons that allow them to do magic tricks with snakes and other things. I'm going to prove those demons are not God. This is my universe. I am the Lord. And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and no destructive plague or judgment will touch you when I strike Egypt. You can't miss the parallel. Don't miss it. It's there. It's obvious. Now go back hundreds of years before this to a mountain called Mount Moriah. An old man by the name of Abraham, the father of all these Israelites, and his son, Isaac. And he's walking up a mountain. And God's told him to do something he's never said to do before. In fact, he says, don't ever do this. But he's testing him. And more than that, he wants to make a point. He's put it there for you and me. He wants us to feel the emotional depth of the sacrifice that he made on another hill later Decades, centuries later, outside of Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago, when his son would walk up a hill carrying a cross, and he would be sacrificed. And he wanted us to feel that in a human way. So let's go to Genesis 22. And I want you to feel this. I've done this before, but you need to hear it again. Isaac's the boy's name. Abraham's the dad. Isaac speak up in verse 7. He says, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replies. The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? He doesn't know what's up. He's probably a teenager or a young adult. Abraham says prophetically. That was a prophetic question, by the way. And it will be answered by another prophet in the first century named John. John the baptizer. But Abraham speaks prophetically. And he says this. He doesn't know what he's saying. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them go on to a gather. And then ultimately Abraham builds an altar, binds his son, starts to kill him. An angel says, stop. And down toward the end, he calls the place 
the Lord will provide or will provide the sacrifice. Looking prophetically forward to the sacrifice of God's son again. Now, one more jump back to the first century. John chapter 1, the gospel of John, verse 29. This wild-eyed prophet has been baptizing everybody. Talking about remission of sin. The forerunner of Jesus, the cousin of Jesus, the older cousin of Jesus. Sees his cousin, Jesus, coming toward him. And he says to his disciples who are around him, look. Says in one translation, behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sin of the world by offering himself up on an altar not made with human hands in heaven. And on a cross made with human hands, killed by the very creatures that he had created. One more passage, again in the first century. Jesus himself. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. After supper, in the middle of a Jewish Seder, he takes a cup of wine to pass around the third or fourth cup called the cup of redemption that the Jews didn't understand. And he changes everything. We'll celebrate it this morning. And Christians for 2,000 years have been celebrating it. It's called communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, the Lord's Supper. He says this, this is the new covenant. In what? In my blood, which is poured out for you. It was the centerpiece of the early church gatherings every week. It was the taking of communion. It wasn't the reading of the letters. Certainly that was important, the reading of the word of God. Certainly it was important to sing hymns. Certainly it was important to plan social action. But the centerpiece of the getting together was the taking of communion, the remembrance of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God slain for them and for you and for me. The Romans knew it. They called Christianity a blood cult because they thought it was a strange way to worship. And it is. Those are just a sampling, by the way, of hundreds of verses about the atonement and the blood sacrifice in the Old and New Testament. Now, hard transition. The New Testament, and specifically today, text is clear. There's a symbiotic relationship between these great truths, God's love for us and our love for other people. One definition of grace is simply undeserved love. Like Jesus, though, we're called to forgive others and be grace givers and Lovers of the undeserving. We're called to be that. Forgiveness of those that hurt us particularly is the primary expression of love that I believe is in view here. Jesus commanded it over and over and over. Jim, you must forgive. It does not require our death, but it does cost us something every time, doesn't it? It does. We feel it. It hurts in ways, but it's so incredibly freeing. Forgiveness of others is something that Jesus called for. Conversely, (laughs) I'm very guilty of this, we offend other people as well. And when we receive their forgiveness, you know what? And their undeserved love, and I get it all the time from my wife and other people, We're receiving a tangible expression of the love of God when we receive that forgiveness. I've asked somebody, Kelton Head this way, brother, who was hurt deeply in his childhood by his parents to come share with us what a difference experiencing the love of Jesus 
made in his life and how he's tangibly expressed that love to others that offended him. Okay, you had some, I'll put it this way, unique family ex- dynamics and experiences growing up that caused some, uh, well, you'd have some pretty significant challenges in life in Louisiana where you grew up. I want you to tell us a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, I used to joke around and say that I had a long-tailed cat's chance in a room full of rocking chairs growing up. Uh, I was the first son of a, uh, two parents who were both drug addicts and alcoholics who neither one graduated from high school. Uh, I spent the first eight years of my life with my mother who ended up, uh, due to her substance abuse, self-medicating her undiagnosed and misdiagnosed bipolar disorder, had a mental breakdown, and uh, the state revoked her parental rights and sent me to live with my dad, who was also a frequent drug abuser, alcoholic, and uh, just really struggled in getting things together. So for the next 10 years... Uh, it was a mixture of him being physically absent due to his work, emotionally absent due to his own upbringing, or uh, mentally absent due to his substance abuse. But I had a stepmother who loved me as if I was one of her own, because uh, I, I am in her eyes and in mine, uh, who was really the rock of our family. She was stable. She had her own issues and her own uh, quirks, but she was the rock of our family. Uh, my senior year, though, she had about enough of my dad and ended up having an affair and, in my eyes, really fell from grace and really was the last straw of any semblance of stability uh, that was existed in our family. Okay. I'm the, I should have asked you, how old are you? Tell us about your marriage, how many kids you got, and all that sort of thing. So I'm 27. Uh, my wife, the hottie sitting right here. All right. Uh, cool. Raise your hand. Hey. She, uh, we are uh, seven and a half months pregnant, expecting hey. our first child uh, in about two months. She didn't have your experiences growing up, did she? She had a little bit different childhood growing up. Yeah, her childhood was really different. I, I told Jim when we first met together that, hey, he might be a great dad, and I'm sure there's a lot of great parents here, but the best parents in the world are sitting right here. Uh, it's my in-laws. Uh, I, I'm blessed to get to see the other end of the spectrum with parenting and it's going to be really interesting raising our child coming from two different ends of the spectrum with backgrounds and uh, uh, upbringing. I'm, let's give future grandparents a hand. Yeah. All right. Okay. What did that home life that was obviously very dysfunctional and very hurtful, how did that affect your attitude growing up? Yeah, so I was always really independent, even when I was living with my dad, and I think that was because of the first 10, 8 years of my life. Uh, And at the time, I really didn't know why, but now looking back, I know it's because I was keeping people at arm's length. Hey, I'm not going to let you get too close. I'm not going to trust you. Uh, That even carries over to today. Uh, My wife messes with me, uh, asks me why I don't trust people, and I say, hey, look, until somebody proves otherwise, anytime I meet somebody, they're either a liar or a weirdo. And they have well, to prove themselves. You can decide which you are. I don't know. I'm going with weirdo. But after my, uh, after my stepmother, uh, she was the last, she was the finger in the dam of my own distrust of people. And after she really fell from grace in my eyes, uh, it was over for me. Uh, I can't trust anybody. I have to hold, hold my own. Uh, everybody is out for themselves. And all of this independence really manifested itself in some very sinful behaviors and thoughts. Uh, the, the racism that I grew up around, sexism, misogyny, really came to the forefront. I had no time for anybody, no interest in anybody else's well-being. I knew that I had to take care of myself. Okay, this is for the guys in the room. Tell your football story. I just got to have you tell it. So I got the opportunity to play some small-time football in southwest Arkansas at Henderson State University. I was an offensive lineman then. I was a lot bigger. But um, 
it was a it was an opportunity to take out my aggression. I had some coaches who really, really appreciated aggression and fighting in particular. So I actually held a record on our football team my first semester of college. I got in 18 fights uh, with other teammates. I think the next runner-up was like at three or four. And they were so, probably all with me. If I'm not seeing you have been to the Josh Center. You may need to go. But uh, if you were to go, they would tell you you had some anger issues. Is that fair? Uh, yeah. Okay, all right. So, uh, obviously, you had to work through all those forgiveness issues. And I want you to talk about those three important people in your life and how you forgave them, particularly, Ken, on your dad and the story I want you to tell about the encounter you had with your dad. But talk about your mom and your stepmom, too. So uh, I came to Christ in college, and that enabled me to even forgive anyone in my life. But uh, my mother uh, was a lot easier to forgive, my biological mother, she, because of her substance abuse and because of just uh, the uh, self-medication she's done all of her life. She's not mentally all there, so she really has a childlike uh, demeanor, and it was a lot easier to forgive her because of that. With my father, uh, after I left high school and I really started pushing them away and, and going my own way, I continued to separate myself from them. Well, after I came to know Christ, you think that would have led me to immediately forgive them, or it should have, but I, I kind of grew in a self-righteous behavior of even more of seeing where they had let me down and why I should be better or separate from them. Well, as I continued to mature and grow over the last six years, seven years, um, Aubrey and I got married about four years ago, there was always this tension between our family, between me and Aubrey and my parents. Well, about three months ago, uh, we knew there needed to be some healing, so I went down by myself to spend a weekend with my parents, and knowing that I was going to have this, not confrontational, but just really bring up all this tension, and my dad actually brought it up first, um, which was very surprising. Um, and he was also doing laundry at the time, which is even more surprising that he was helping out around the house. But he, I wanted to cook breakfast for him the next day and kind of go over this, but he, he called me before I got the opportunity. So he's, he's folding clothes and he's standing up and he's talking to me and my stepmom is there and he's asking me, what have we done to offend you? We feel like there's a roadblock here. We feel like we've lost you. And I just let it all come out. I said, look, this is the things, I mean, he, he knows what my childhood was like. He knows what he's done to our family. And I know he hates himself because of it. Forgiving himself is something he's still working through. Well, I'm letting all this come out and tell him everything I've told you about his substance abuse, his absenteeism, my mother, my stepmother's uh, falling from grace in my eyes. And there's a lot of tears, and my dad is a crier, and he's doing laundry, and he's kind of turning his, turning his back on me as he's doing it because he doesn't want me to see him cry. Well, at this moment, I really feel like God led me. I reached over, and I grabbed his wrist, and I pulled him to me, and I held him by the face, and I said, look, you've hurt me. There's no way for me to ever forget that. But God has forgiven me of my sins. Jesus has forgiven you of your sins against me and him. What right do I have to hold that against you? And we're both crying and there's snot everywhere. And, but I was able to convey to him and my, and my stepmother, Nikki, that yes, there is hurt there. There's still hurt there. There will always be hurt there. But just as Jesus forgive, forgave me 2,000 years ago on the cross and wiped my debt away, uh, that the debt that I owed him for my sin, I have a responsibility to do that with my parents. And, and I'm still working through that. I'm not perfect. But I know that I've wiped that debt. I've removed their debt. And anytime those hurts and those feels come back, I just have to remind myself that I've forgiven them. That doesn't mean the hurt goes away, but it means that they don't owe me anything. I started to ask you to summarize, but you just did. Let's give this guy a great hand. Big hand. Thanks, buddy.
All right, a few application questions. Have you personally embraced the most important question I could ask you today? The supernatural atoning death of the Lamb of God who was slain for your sins. It's like I kelt, it changed Kelton. He didn't tell you some other stories he told the last group. One of them was he became competitively holy with some guy that he wanted to fight with because he was a deep Christian. He had to work through a lot of things, but it changed his life. He's a different person. If you've never experienced this great love, I invite you to this morning. And the prayer team, if you guys will kind of come on up, we missed this last hour. There's going to be a baptism in just a minute, but you can still kind of hang around or start toward the sides at least. You'll have an opportunity. Go visit with someone if you've never done that. Second question. Have you been baptized? As an act of obedience, as a symbol of this washing away of your sins as Christ commanded and he also modeled. Third question. Are you experiencing the forgiveness of God daily? Salvation is not just a one-time thing. We're supposed to be growing in our faith and in our salvation as we know God and relate to him experientially. And then, as John would want me to ask you, are you lavishly pouring out that forgiveness on those that offend you? Two other questions that are not on the screen. Who do you need to forgive? Specifically, ask the Holy Spirit. Who do you need to forgive? Express that to God out loud, verbally, when you're alone. And if appropriate, it's not always appropriate, call and ask the other person's forgiveness. Then who do you need to seek forgiveness from? Who have you hurt or offended? Again, I'll leave that to you and the Holy Spirit. Here's the way I'm going to close. I've been on a worship tear the last few weeks. Some of you recall, I preached about that two weeks ago, some hymns that meant a lot to me in the last sermon. I've got a couple more that I've been singing. Don't worry, I won't sing. Only God gets to hear that unless you're sitting by me in church. And uh, it's not pretty, but God loves it. Uh, and reading some of those hymns. Words are a big deal. They're a big deal to me. They reflect great and powerful truths. So I'll share with you one verse from an old hymn. Then a few verses from a new hymn you may not have heard. Actually, the new hymn's by, it's dated. It's 30 or 40 years old, new to me. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's by a group called The Choir. So first, an old hymn. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make you whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then the newer hymn. A little more cryptic for you poets in the room. Go on up to the mountain of mercy. To the crimson perpetual tide. Kneel down on the shore and be thirsty no more. Go under and be purified. Follow Christ to the holy mountain, you sinners sorry and wrecked by the fall. Cleanse your heart and your soul in the fountain that flows for you and for me and for all. On that hillside, you will be delivered. At the foot of the cross, justified. And your spirit restored by the river that pours from our blessed Savior's side. At that wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree 
on that beautiful, scandalous night, you and me were atoned by his blood and forever washed white. Our souls were washed white on that beautiful, scandalous night. We're going to celebrate first with a baptism. Then you'll have a chance to be prayed for. And then we'll do what the church has been doing for centuries. We'll take communion in remembrance of that sacrifice. It's a privilege.